Part Five, Section Two of the Trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part Five, Section Two. The clock said half past one. Callista watched Judge Mann hurry into the courtroom, all business, dark pucker of a frown the black robe too priest-like it seemed to her that all present including herself were distorted by the magnifying power of ritual as father bland in the back row beside my late acquaintance james mulhouse doherty would appear deceptively beyond life-size if he were wearing his magic vestments and saying a mass this court is now in session Mr. Delahanty, which is the clerk? When did judges start wearing black robes, and why black? How long has the office of judge existed at all? How about the wig? Oh, the opportunity for mice. And why did the American states do away with it? Unfair to bald American lawyers. Subject for a thesis, relation judiciary to priesthood ecclesiastical courts modern veneration for office of judge has judiciary ever become really secular in fact could it ever my ignorance members of the jury said judge mann your attention please i have just been talking on the telephone with dr garcia at st michael's hospital where Mr. Judd was taken after his collapse this morning when he had finished testifying. Talking to Edith, compare ignorance to an unplowed field. It was a heart attack, as you probably realized, and the outlook for him may not be good. In Dr. Garcia's opinion, Mr. Judd's condition has probably been developing for quite a long time. The soil itself is ready, indifferent, to produce flowers, nice fat potatoes, or stinking weeds. The attack occurred, please remember, when his testimony was done. Legally, the situation is this. Mr. Judd's collapse has no bearing on the case you must deal with. He had completed what he had to say. Mr. Hunter had announced he didn't intend to make a redirect examination. During this long noon recess I have talked with both counsel. Neither side felt there would have been any occasion to recall Mr. Judd. While he testified, I think you'll agree, Mr. Judd was in full command of his faculties, so far as anyone can tell. Give his testimony the same weight, no more and no less, that you would if his breakdown had not happened simply try to shut it out of your minds to my certain knowledge neither counsel was aware of the bad state of mr judd's health both counsel believed him as well able to stand the emotional strain of giving testimony as any other witness mr judd undoubtedly believed this himself dr garcia tells me mr judd had neglected medical attention for a long time and was unaware of his heart weakness i charge you now and will again remember this thing happened outside of the trial 
the judge was laboring callista understood laboring too much perhaps to defend cecil warner and through warner herself against the chill poison of unspoken words illogical notions if nathaniel judd died no one would blame mr hunter for summoning him but many would recall cecil warner's words if you do not understand that question i have no others for certain minds it would be no strain to argue judd died therefore the blake girl is guilty it could be true that warner's words might have helped to topple old judd by making judd sense for an instant some failure of charity and of perception in himself ill embarrassed he might not have rallied self-justifications quickly enough so warner's words might have caused a brief stab of conscience enough to send him over the edge but if he dies the chief fault is mine i am guilty to live is to destroy true or false i am small my only real quarrel with hunter is that if he has his way i shall never grow how stubborn the life that can't desire to die last august she had desired it or thought she had until a moment of that saturday night on the stairs her mother weeping in a room left behind her mind visited strangely by victoria's grandchild the funny thing she had begun to desire death earlier in july after jim's letter the only one he ever wrote stilted timid needless double talk the awkwardness and misspelled words not endearing or funny but rather shocking evidence of the blindness of her love i will not say part of me died when i read that dismal thing we die and regenerate with every breath all that happened i would say to edith was that my journey had taken me beyond the region where i met jimmy and learned some aspects not all of a passion called love notice also am i still talking to edith how the laughing crying devil angel that jimmy woke up in me has not died but rouses me even in the prison night stinking bare light bulb night starved for the pressure the almost anger furious crescendo meteoric release oh in an enlightened society i could have been a splendid high-class whore you may call your next witness mr hunter sergeant lloyd rankin callista heard cecil warner's short involuntary sigh felt his hostile stiffening and alertness detective sergeant lloyd rankin of the winchester police came down the aisle and held up a flat hand for the oath the slab-faced sober man his gray hair under the cold light glinted like dull steel his eyes a lighter gray but opaque oyster gray draw him as a bulldozer cecil might like it she ran her fingers softly over the wrinkled hand lifted away the idle pencil and drew his scratch pad toward her a bulldozer has its own squat dignity if it's directed to knock over some little house loved by generations that's no fault of the dozer the blade advances 
the diesel bellow swells to the roar of a caged hurricane. Old timbers, nobody wants them, crumble like dry cheese. And look, the picture grew in swift lines and leaping shadows. Look, a doll, left behind maybe under the eaves years ago. It had tumbled into brief light in front of the caterpillar treads, which would of course move on. Too bad, but no time to stop. She knew idly that the small brilliant drawing was good. Light lived in that doll, the rest a melancholy gray, a darkness. And turning the sketch face down, she wondered if she had done right in telling Cecil Warner of Sergeant Rankin's curious lapse on that afternoon last August when the world fell apart. In the old man's steady glare at Rankin, maybe he hadn't even felt her take the pencil, she glimpsed a blaze that would have suited the eyes of a male tiger about to drive another way from his mate and, if possible, gut him to ribbons. Her own half-welcomed excitement, private elemental anguish akin to the neural riot of approaching orgasm, was just as irrelevant, just as far from any notion of discovering truth in a courtroom of all places. For what, after all, did Rankin's moment of ruddy brutality have to do with the truth or falsehood of her story? Accused of it, he will be. Rankin would flatly deny it, the word of a respectable policeman against that of a monkshood girl. Gravely to the prosecutor, he was admitting twenty-two years of service with the Winchester police, twelve of them with the detective division. An honest policeman, Rankin, an up-to-standard product of what must be a tight, hard school, a product chipped at the surfaces but wearing well. And what is honesty? She supposed that for Lloyd Rankin it would mean being no more dishonest than a majority of his peers. It would mean, don't take big bribes, and don't be an unpopular holy Joe about the percentages from bookies and pimps and what not. That's sort of like a tax, see? No compromise with major crime. But don't stick your neck too far out except in the obvious line of duty. There, in that clear line of duty, be ready to risk your life all the way and maybe lose it. Certainly give him that, she thought. He had all the earmarks of what is called a brave man, who could probably say, with a bullet lodged in the bone, It's the job! To Sergeant Rankin, honesty would mean that obeying orders comes first. The top brass is paid to think, so when in doubt, follow the rules. And Sergeant Rankin would believe, this she knew, that all criminals once caught are somewhat outside the human race, no longer protected by the common laws of charity and fair play. The professionals among them are the enemy. The non-professionals, the one-shot wife-stabbers and other grown-up first offenders, his mind would balk at those, fretful and baffled. Why couldn't they act like other people? Or perhaps he would be wedded to some one of the superficial formulas, substitutes for thought, 
derived from religion or popular psychology. Sensing no contradiction, Rankin would also believe in his heart that the world is more or less a goddamn jungle where every man, including this man Rankin, has his price. What is your present assignment, Sergeant? Attached to Homicide Bureau, sir, the last four years. I ask you to recall the events of Monday, the 17th of last August. Did anything happen that day in the line of duty that had to do with the defendant, Callista Blake? Yes, sir. Give your own account of it, please. Sergeant Rankin slipped on his reading glasses, appearing in that owlishless, no less a cop, and consulted his notebook. Late on the morning of August 17th of this year, Chief of Detectives Daniel Gage directed me to go to the apartment of a Miss Callista Blake at number 21 Covent Street, this city, in response to a telephone call that Miss Blake had made to the local precinct station. The station had passed on the substance of her call to our headquarters, and Chief Gage relayed it to me. Miss Blake had told the desk sergeant she wished to give information to someone in authority concerning the death of a Mrs. James Doherty in Shanesville the previous night. She had said further that she was ill, and gave this as the reason why she did not wish to come to the police station herself. Chief Gage had communicated with the state police, and he passed on to me what he learned from them about the death of this Mrs. Doherty, who had been found, apparently drowned, in a pond at Shanesville. All the persons involved, Miss Blake, Mrs. Doherty, and others you may have heard about later, were at that time unknown to you? Yes, sir. Routine assignment to follow up information received. Go on, please. I reached Coven Street around noontime. I was in plain clothes, of course. Miss Blake admitted me, and before looking at my identification, remarked, Fast work. I've only been waiting an hour. I don't know if this was sarcasm. There had been no unnecessary delay. Wanting to soften the intensity of Cecil's glare, she whispered, It was a noise to crack the silence. He stood in the door like a zombie, the dear man, so's to make me speak first. She won from the old man only a start and a drowned look. He wasn't quite with her. Go on, Sergeant. I asked for her name, gave her mine, entered the apartment at her invitation after showing my credentials. I inquired how she came to know of Mrs. Doherty's death, and she said, first, that her stepfather had telephoned her about it, but then immediately, and without questioning from me, she said, Oh, I knew it. I knew it last night. Did you inquire what she meant by that? Not right away. I first asked about her stepfather's call. I wanted to get the identification and relations of these people clear in my mind. She gave me the name of Dr. Herbert Chalmers, said he had called her about eleven o'clock, and told her Mrs. Doherty's body had been found in the pond. I engaged her in some general talk, 
who Mr. Chalmers was, and what was her connection with Shanesville, with Mrs. Doherty, how long she had lived there at Covent Street, things like that. She said she had called the precinct station right after her stepfather hung up, which checked as to time. That first remark of hers, I think we'll come back to that later. You say that in her call to the precinct station, Miss Blake had said she was too ill to go there. Did she appear to be ill when you saw her? Rankin frowned. I wouldn't say so. Dark under the eyes. I noticed a tremor in her hands. Nothing that couldn't be explained by, oh, nervousness, perhaps. In that general talk, were her answers clear and satisfactory? I learned nothing later to contradict them. I see. Well, did she then tell you what information it was she wished to give, what she had in mind when she called the precinct? Yes, sir. When I inquired, she said Mrs. Doherty had come to the apartment the evening before. I asked what time. Miss Blake said Mrs. Doherty had come at about quarter to eight and left at eight-thirty. Did she give the occasion, the reason for Mrs. Doherty's visit? Miss Blake said she had telephoned to Ann Doherty, asking her to come. I inquired the reason for this, what it was she wanted to see Mrs. Doherty about, and she refused to tell me. Did Miss Blake explain her refusal? No, sir. Just said, I won't tell you that. I didn't press it. I wanted to get on to other facts, facts she was willing to tell me. And she did give you other information? She did, sir, freely enough. Just summarize it, please. She begun by saying that since some time in July she had been under the influence of what she called a suicidal depression, that she had some poison in the apartment and that she was afraid Mrs. Doherty might have drunk some of it by accident. Miss Blake said she had become ill during Mrs. Doherty's visit, had gone into her bedroom and shut the door to get away from her, as Miss Blake put it, and that while she was there in the bedroom, Mrs. Doherty must have poured a drink from the brandy bottle which contained the poison. Miss Blake said she had been still in the bedroom with the door shut, locked, in fact, when Mrs. Doherty left the apartment. Then, according to her account, Miss Blake came out, found the bottle had been moved, and became alarmed for Mrs. Doherty's safety. The slight drawl and falling cadence of Sergeant Rankin's voice was effective, Callista noted. Good theater. Something to admire as a work of art. She got her car out of the garage and drove to Shanesville, to the Doherty house, found the Doherty's car in the driveway, found Mrs. Doherty's handbag fallen in the path, house dark and door locked. Miss Blake said she then followed the path toward her mother's house, assuming that Ann Doherty must have gone that way, and presently discovered her, dead, in that pond. At that point, Miss Blake said, she panicked, and was also ill again, and drove home. You understand, sir, 
I am merely summarizing, as you requested. Actually, in that preliminary talk with her, a summary was all I got, with, as I later learned, some omissions. As soon as I had a general idea of the situation, I called Chief Gage, using Miss Blake's telephone. Chief Gage himself arrived at Covent Street at about ten of one, with the fingerprint man, Sergeant Zane, I think it was, a photographer, and yourself, Mr. Hunter. Did you inquire, before others arrived, about this poison Miss Blake said she had? Yes, sir. She said it was aconitine, and said she had prepared it a week before, by steeping monkshood roots in alcohol, brandy. I asked where she got the roots. From her mother's garden in Shanesville, she said. I asked whether she still had the stuff on hand. She said, of course. Mr. Hunter, maybe I ought to say at this point that up to then Miss Blake appeared to have no idea at all she might be accused of anything. I don't pretend to understand it, but that was my distinct impression. Well, she took me out to the kitchenette and showed me a half-full bottle labeled brandy, which she said contained the poison, and also an ordinary kitchen canister with some chopped-up mess that she told me was monkshood roots. She herself remarked that the brandy bottle probably had Mrs. Doherty's fingerprints. I took these items back to the living room later, and from then on they weren't out of my sight until Chief Gage arrived and had them sent safe hand to the department's toxicologist, Dr. Walter Ginsburg, after a fingerprint check. Miss Blake was very composed, I'd say sort of indifferent, about all this. When she had shown me the brandy bottle and the canister in the kitchenette, I asked her, "'Miss Blake, what did you have against this Mrs. Doherty? You might as well tell me.' She didn't answer, just looked at me as if the question was, well, foolish or surprising. I said, "'Why did you do it?' Sergeant Rankin turned over a leaf of his notebook. She replied, that's how it is? I've told you the truth, but it's going to be like that? I told her, yes, of course it would be like that. And I asked her who she thought would believe the kind of story she'd given me. Miss Blake then said, who knows what anyone believes? And she asked, are you going to arrest me? I said that would be a decision of my superiors. Then I told her to go back to the living room and remain in my sight while I used her telephone. She did so. Callista felt the old man lean close. He was muttering at his mouth corner. Is that when he... She nodded. He's deleted five rather long minutes. Why not let it go? My word against his, nothing much happened anyway, and it hasn't any bearing. Warner growled indecisively. Partly my fault, too. Should have remembered my skirt might be transparent against that sun. Warner's hand tightened and fell slack. She noticed Rankin's oyster-gray glance flick her lightly and pass on, 
for the first time since he had taken the stand. Before Chief Gage and others arrived, did Miss Blake do or say anything else you remember as significant? Well, one thing, I don't know how significant. There was a fancy aquarium thing in her living room, with fish, tropical fish, I guess. When I'd finished my call to Chief Gage, well, should I take up the court's time with this? I don't know if it's relevant at all. Surprisingly to Callista, it was Judge Mann who said, I think, having started, you may as well tell it, Sergeant. We can stop you if it's too far afield. Well, when I'd finished my call, Miss Blake said, I'm getting something from the kitchen. I suppose you want to come with me? I did so and stood by while she got a pitcher and emptied the ice cube trays from the refrigerator into it. I inquired about it, and she said, don't worry it's just ice she carried the pitcher back to the living room she pointed out where an electric cord from the aquarium was plugged into a wall socket and asked me to disconnect it i did so mostly to humor her saw no harm in it i don't know anything about aquariums nice hobby i guess anyhow before i knew what she intended she had poured the whole pitcher full of ice cubes into the tank and lifted out a gadget, a heating coil in a glass cover, and wrapped it real sharp against the leg of the table so that the glass broke and scattered over the carpet. I asked her what on earth she did that for, but she didn't explain the action. That is, she said the fish were beautiful, said it as if that explained something, but I don't know what she meant. Then she just stood by the aquarium watching them die. Two or three of them were dead almost right away, anyhow a matter of a few minutes. She pointed one of them out to me, a very small red fish. Said it was a, a live bearer, I think she called it, and she gave me the scientific name of it too, but I don't remember that. Platy something. She said that one was a female ready to give birth. I'd thought all fish laid eggs, but seems not. I asked her again what she wanted to go and do a thing like that for. She said, they were beautiful and I loved them. Now watch them die. Again it was Judge Mann who asked, those were her exact words? Yes, Your Honor. I asked her then if she took pleasure from killing beautiful things, and she looked at me, rather strangely, I must say, and said, No, Sergeant. This is the only time I ever killed anything beautiful, or anything I loved. I don't know why a person would do a thing like that. Tight-voiced, dubious, like a man groping through uncertain country, Judge Mann asked, was she, in your opinion, overexcited, exalted, anything like that, Sergeant? Hunter just watched. Callista thought, Hunter isn't liking this. Sergeant Rankin's voice echoed something of Judge Mann's perplexity, a true echo, probably, for Callista sensed that Sergeant Rankin had never until this moment entertained the notion that the monkshood girl might be of unsound mind. 
and the notion might be, to Sergeant Rankin, interesting, without regard to the tender feelings of the district attorney's office. For an accusation of physical coercion and threat of rape would be far less convincing from a psychopath. Cecil would be noticing the sergeant's tentative nibbling at the idea. Cecil might be wishing that the judge would make more inquiry along that line, for to Cecil, she knew, an insanity defense might still be a sort of last-ditch possibility, in spite of her total refusal to go along with it. While she herself rather hoped the little man in the two-priest-like gown would shut up and mind his own business. What's it to him? Perhaps it will be to him, and not to Cecil, whom I love, that I'll find the courage to say I am guilty. Sergeant Rankin picked his way among words like a man stepping from hummock to hummock through a marsh. I would say, Your Honor, that there was, maybe, something like that about her general behavior. But a vague sort of thing. I don't know if I should express an opinion. Just a, a layman's opinion, anyhow. Well, said the judge crisply, did Miss Blake become abusive or scream, cry, talk irrationally or too loud or too fast, anything like that? No, Your Honor, none of those things, not at all. Did she seem confused, inattentive to what you said, or unable to understand it? No, Your Honor, very cool and self-possessed, really. I had, if I might put it this way, I had an impression that she was deliberately talking over my head, that I didn't understand some of the things she said because I wasn't meant to. Do you mean her answers were unresponsive, unconnected with the questions you asked? No, not quite that, Your Honor. Well, I recall one thing, after she broke the aquarium heater and we exchanged those remarks about, about killing beautiful things. I said to her, Look, Miss Blake, if they decide to arrest you, surely you've got some friend who would have looked after that aquarium for you while you're away. Now, it's my recollection that I said that in a perfectly friendly, kindly way. I certainly had no wish to make things hard for her. But Miss Blake said, A spring morning can't be warmed up in the oven. Well, I wouldn't know whether a head whether a psychiatrist would call that an irrational reply or not. I just didn't think it made much sense. I see. Go on, Mr. Hunter. Did anything else significant happen before Chief Gage arrived? I think not, sir. Nothing I remember. I didn't think I was getting anywhere trying to talk with her, so for the last five or ten minutes we just sat there waiting for the others to come. Yeah, Callista said under her breath, we just sat there. She leaned a little against Cecil's shoulder, weary, suddenly desiring sleep above all things, yet touched and curiously disturbed by the old man's harmless, rather pleasant smell of shaving lotion, soap, tobacco. Drowsily she thought, he's really nothing like my father. What happened in your presence after Chief Gage and the others arrived at Miss Blake's apartment? 
well miss blake was briefly questioned by chief gage and yourself it covered the same things i'd talked about with her she was asked by chief gage about a photograph and a couple of letters that i found in a desk in her bedroom she was not at that time under arrest was she no sir she was not i recall that chief gage quite formally asked her permission to look around the apartment and she gave it please describe those items the photograph and the letters the photograph was a snapshot of a man in swimming trunks taken at some beach or other and the name jimmy was written on the back just the name nothing else one of the letters dated july fifth nineteen fifty nine was signed j and miss blake when shown it identified it as one written to her by mr james doherty of shanesville the other one bearing no date and not signed in fact not finished was identified by miss blake as one that she had started to write to mr doherty but had never mailed was miss blake questioned about those letters there at her apartment not much then sir she identified mr doherty as the husband of the mrs doherty who had been found dead in shanesville chief gage asked her to explain the relation between herself and mr doherty and she said without any show of emotion with a shrug as a matter of fact she said oh he was my sweetheart for a little while a summertime amusement she saw t j hunter relaxed and thoughtful walk to the prosecution's table and spend a weary time standing there brooding at the small papers he had taken up callista closed her eyes if it please the court i will offer these two letters and photograph for admission in evidence but if they are accepted i will have the letters read to the jury somewhat later to make a more orderly presentation for the present i merely wish to establish their identification by sergeant rankin the deep voice by her shoulder remarked i will ask to see them do you have to go over there cecil then callista was aware of a small but unaccountable lapse of time for cecil was already by the prosecution's table glaring morosely at little scraps of paper his bushed eyebrows in a clench while t j hunter stood by politely hands in his pockets had she fallen asleep sitting up was it possible for an accused witch to do that in a court of law oh likely had something to attend to and took off on my broomstick well sure a mission three times around the shanesville house casting a spell to curdle cousin maud's plum jam and high time too it merely slipped my mind how'd i manage without a cat she saw the old man's shoulder sag and stiffen it was cut and dried he had told her the letters would go in mostly because he hoped to gain more than lose by them when there was a chance for the defense to interpret them this present show of examining them was what he called legal window dressing she saw him make some quick sotto voce comment his face savagely disgusted an aside that no one but t j hunter could hear hunter flushed all the way up his bald forehead 
the flush passed leaving no sign of anger then cecil spoke in his courtroom voice smoothly a tone of indifference close to contempt the defense will not protest the admission of these documents how could i have slept cecil was returning apparently no one noticed a minor accomplishment of necromancy i just tossed these things off you know some mumbling and talking over yonder as she felt the return of cecil's warmth and took hold of his hand though he was really nothing like her father yes rankin identifying the silly things poor jim spelled relinquish r e l i n q u e s h e for effort cecil what did you say to the rising young lawyer that turned him pink he looked at her doubtfully not smiling i said the prosecution must be running out of keyholes maybe you touched a childhood trauma his childhood be damned the old man grumbled he's still a snot-nose pulling the wings off flies as a profession i decline to be compared to a housefly shut up dear i've got to listen again sergeant after miss blake's admission that james doherty had been her lover was she questioned any further there at her apartment no sir chief gage informed her that she would be detained for questioning she made no protest accompanied by yourself mr hunter I took her in a police car direct to Mr. Lamson's office in this building. Was she questioned there in your presence? Yes, sir, mainly by Mr. Lamson. My recollection is that the others present were yourself, Chief Gage, Miss Wallingford, that's Mr. Lamson's secretary, who made a stenographic record of the interrogation, and Sergeant Shields of the State Police who was present only a part of the time, a few minutes. Did Miss Blake sign anything during that interview at Mr. Lamson's office while you were present? She did, sir. The stenographic record of the interrogation was typed by Miss Wallingford. Miss Blake then read it and signed it, signed the written statement that the answers given by her and recorded in the transcript were true to the best of her knowledge and belief her signature was witnessed by mr lamson and yourself and mr lamson requested me to read and initial the pages of the typescript which i did if it please the court and cecil was gone again looming over yonder examining the pages large ones this time impressive legal size more window dressing but discussion was longer. She grew inattentive in her drowsiness. She heard Hunter remark that the transcript would be read after cross-examination of Sergeant Rankin. If, said the bald, polite man with a shovel chin, Mr. Warner elected to cross-examine. Cecil grunted. A sidebar huddle followed that. Some of the time she knew her eyelids had drooped hiding her in a murmurous partial darkness. Some of the time she was watching, with an abstract friendliness and faraway approval, 
the thoughtful and still puzzled features of Judge Terence Mann. I can't explain it either, Judge. According to my own biased notions, I'm not mad, at least no more than my old buddy Hamlet, who also had a mother. Gets complicated there, because Hamlet was decidedly male, I think. Any side up, while I'm every inch a wench. Ask Rankin. You see, it disturbed her to reflect how little any of those present would ever know about her. They looked at her, anyway their eyes did. In a few days they would hear her talk from that dizzy isolation of the witness stand. Anyway their ears would register certain sounds. Already through the testimony with their mental vision, imperfect, cloudy, variously preoccupied, had watched her squeaking grass blades with the Wayne kids, snapping at poor cousin Maud on the front porch. Had they seen her, through the fogs and excitements of their own scrambled sexual histories, caught in that slow frenzy, wearing a blouse, on the divan in Jim's office, under the glazed smirk of an art calendar nude? Who were you then, Callista? What were you then? They had seen her, guilty or innocent, standing by black water, under hemlocks, under a hazy moon. But they did not know her. They could not communicate with the inner spectator-participator. It had needed nineteen years to create the monkshood girl, a short time, yet to the jurors, the judge, Cecil, even to Edith, the nineteen years amounted to an infinite complexity never to be explored. They could not watch the golden kitten Bonnie, nor Aunt Cora. They could not learn of the young discoveries, language, music, endless expansion of the visible world as her hand acquired certain powers of dealing with line and color and mass, or began to acquire it. They had no vision for the dreams of her sleep or the waking dreams. Anne Doherty, inarticulate Jim, mysteries quite as obscure. What do you think you know about Anne, gentlemen? Cute, blonde, and married. Isn't that about as far as you go? We are not what you see, we people who look at you out of clever photographs in the paper at your breakfast tables. When you burn the image you have created, you have burned the true self also. But you cannot know that self. I am here with you, and captured, and maybe you ought to fear me as you do, but I am not what you suppose. End of Part 5, Section 2 Recording by Roger Moline